Hi, this is Paul, and for those of you watching the YouTube and not listening to the audio podcast, which Zell, which Kale is probably doing, is going to look weird because I just realized I'm wearing exactly the same clothes that I wore when I talked to Kale the other day. But most of this video won't be my conversation with Kale. I posted this conversation with Kale yesterday because I'm thinking about the framing of Kale's video. The framing of Kale's video is trying to get at the underneath, um, trying to get at the underneath. Kale has sort of rebranded his channel. Kale is uh, doing conversations that try to get at the underneath. Now, what on earth do we mean by the underneath? You can see the little AI-generated thumbnail I put on the, the podcast, on the, on the video. Ugh, darn dyslexic. I can't do it. I can't. Okay, down, up, uh, this one, this one. Okay, there we go. Almost every human framing, religious, substantive debate has to do with what is underneath, has to do with what is not visible on is not visible directly to us. And, and in fact, it's even the case that there have been some, I, I've heard some videos where they've talked about, oh, it was on, it was on, it was on HOMATH. It was on HOMATH where he was mentioning that there are, there are sometimes men that are so low on the status hierarchy that they are not even visibly seen by women. Now, I've I've read a few times a little clip from a very interesting book on Daniel Everett's book, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, where he talks about an incident where he and his daughter were in, were living in this village, and a god appears on the far bank, and he and his daughter can't see the god. Everybody else sees the god. They're not crazy. He's been living with them for a long time. He can't see the god they all see the God. The whole math video talked about how you saw some of this with the Jordan Peterson basketball bouncing ape video, where if you're not looking for the ape, you don't see the ape coming through the video. The whole math video talked about studies and uh, anecdotal reports where where men were actually not seen because the women weren't looking for men that were that in there in their hierarchies and their attention hierarchies that inconsequential that they they visibly didn't even see those men and and women will often talk about being invisible in a room and all of this is tearing down the 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 dream and facile facade that modernity had that basically suggests that we see clearly and plainly this sort of Lockean assumption about how attention and cognition works. It's, it's falling apart and it's going to continue to fall apart as the kinds of changes we find ravaging our culture continue to ravage. Now, I wanted to start a little bit of what, what Kale said here for the video. Thank you on my show. Um, what this show is really about, or what I'm trying to figure out what the show is really about is 
this um, this idea that um, you know going into the underneath um, is kind of a play, a little bit of a play on words, but the idea that there's something subterranean uh, conceptually that is sort of below everything, which kind of gives animation and form to all of that which we see around us, right? And so there's the old. Now it can be, we can sort of imagine it as below. We can imagine it as above and below and above aren't exactly the same, but it's, or we can imagine it behind that there are, well, let's let him finish. Notion of, um, you know, uh, in, in sort of ex explicitly theological and sacramental terms, we talk about um, thing, uh, uh, an outward sign of an inner reality would be a kind of classic definition of a sacrament. And so I want to sort of take that idea um, as uh, sort of a, a jumping off point to talk about story and um, this idea that stories, um, you know, one of the things that I've heard you and other people in the corner talk about is stories are a kind of um, compression engine uh, or compression machine. And I wanted to talk about it in that term, uh, in that sense. And so the videos on my channel you can watch the video you can also watch on kale's channel it's it's out there to see i i think kale's channel isn't monetized so you can probably just watch it if you don't have youtube premium you can watch it without the without the ads on kale's channel now some of you know who justin wells is and what he's doing on his channel which has very very few people is he goes through story structure and he uses clips from movies and he sort of does the the Hollywood movie thing, but he goes through story structure. And what's interesting is that it's not just structure of stories. Again, in sort of the modernist frame, we would think that, well, stories are just out there and they have these different structures. But at some point, psychology began to ask the question, and this is sort of where Jordan Peterson walks in, well, why is why are these patterns discernible? And why, in many respects, are these patterns are within cultures, but they're also cross-cultural? And, and, and why do these patterns exist at all? And, and why, why, why is this stuff so powerful? And it is. It's tremendously powerful. If it weren't so powerful, you wouldn't have billions and billions of dollars generated by movies. And you wouldn't, despite the fact that there are whole varieties of discussions about things, you wouldn't have... You wouldn't, in fact, have something that they're talking about, and so there is an underneath. There is a there is a top down. There is a behind the scenes. There is something going on. And and again, in some sense, modernity wanted to limit the number of things behind the scenes. And in some ways, that was the move that that modernity took. Now, often the word being used for that is disenchanted. And so right now there's a big movement to sort of re-enchant. And, well, that's one framing. But it's, I, I, I'm sort of taken by Kale's notion of the underneath. Because the, the disenchanted and enchanted sort of walks into the, the enlightenment ambush in a way that underneath doesn't. Because in many respects, what, what atheism what modernity wanted to say is that the number of things underneath are very limited and we get to say what they are. And, and those limitations are derived from 
and then you sort of go back into a Lockean Cartesian frame. So in many ways, this is all about the underneath. Now, part of what I'm doing in this video is also highlighting some individuals like Kale, like Justin, and we're going to talk about Ted. Because oh, and over the last six years, I was watching the, uh, the live stream this morning on Grail Country that Luke was, Luke's been live streaming on Grail Country and he had Grim Grizz over and I was just going back on Twitter a little bit where Mark Lefebvre's a little, little hurt by um, the fact that he had sort of been exiled by certain corners of the corner at a, at a certain point and so he's not in the corner. It's like, well, this corner stuff is so vague. But Mark is very much working on many of the same projects that we are. And, of course, there are other people not of this corner that are working on the same projects. I, I listened, I, um, I reached out to Elizabeth Oldfield because one of the interesting things about her whole project of the Sacred Podcast is they're working on the same thing. And this is what we're bumping into all over the place that, well, people are working on this same thing. I mean, Ian McGillchrist, that whole section um, very much working on similar things, and and people didn't come at this from the same source. A whole bunch of each, a whole bunch of us found each other, a la Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson sort of did a work of exorcism on a whole large group of people. But many of us have been coming at this and sort of found each other, and and what we found and created is a space using these tools like YouTube and Twitter and. Uh, Luke uses Voxer and some of these other tools. We've used some of these tools to have conversations with each other that we found tremendously important. And, and we've had these conversations across lines, uh, Christian atheist lines, uh, lines within the traditions of Christianity, um, other spirituality lines. One of, the, one of the big things about the corner is that it's been so open and that doesn't mean that there isn't conflict, but, but conflict is generative. And I think part of what's made the corner productive is that we've had generative, we've had generative conflict and conflict maybe isn't the right word. And anyway, it's Dialogos. It's what Verveke points to. It's all of this stuff. So, I wanted to take some time with this video. Now this, and what, what happened in Arkansas? Okay, so how did this thing sort of develop? Well, Jordan Peterson started making videos. Jonathan Peugeot and I started making videos kind of at the same time. So Jonathan Peugeot and I sort of got together. Strawn said, oh, there's a colleague of Jordan's that you really should be listening to named John Verveke. And Buddhism and cognitive science, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to pay any attention to that. But he kept insisting. So I start listening to John's stuff. I start reacting to John's stuff. Then John contacts me. Then we start having conversations, start having conversations with Jonathan. In 2019, uh, Catherine is, is getting the idea, oh, we should do a conference. Let's do, do the conference in March of 2020 or in... Mm, when were we going to do it in 2020? October of 2020. Uh, or August, September of 2020. Anyway, we're going to do the conference in 2020. So we're all, John and Jonathan and I are having these conversations. And then, of course, COVID hits, so can't do the conference in 2020. Conference had to wait until 2022. And then we're able to do the conference in Thunder Bay. 
And since then, we've done a conference in Chino, but there have been other conferences that have been rolling along, smaller conferences. So the, the two conferences where John, Jonathan, and I have gotten together have been Chino and Thunder Bay, but there have been other events that have happened. We've had these two German estuary breakwater events that have happened. We've had other little estuary meetups that have been going on. And when this stuff really started getting rolling in like 2019, you know, there was a lot of people that were sort of saying, well, you should, Paul, you should sort of centrally organize and control this. And I said, no, I don't want to do that because if I do that, I'll kill it. So let's, let's let it, let's let it run wild and let's just encourage people to take initiative and to, and to organize a conference and to do this and to do that and to organize estuaries. And, and then you've got, you've always got outliers. And I think actually the presence of outliers makes the movement healthier because what it does is it sort of challenges all of the lines that sort of naturally form and outliers then mean that there are other lines and other frames and, and the multiplicity, although a little bit chaotic, is actually helpful for the, the ongoing growth of the movement. So Ted put together a conference and got Father Eric and Dr. Jim to speak at it. And he did this in Arkansas. And of course, I'm sure if I would have been able to come, I would have liked to have come. I couldn't come. I only have a limited number of events each year that I can go to, depending on my church gives me a, a certain, basically gives me four weeks each year that I can devote to this project. So I didn't go to Arkansas. But, and so now the videos are sort of, seeping out a little bit. This one has 81 views as of when I started watching the video, but I, I didn't start watching it until a whole bunch of people said, oh, the talk said Convivian. Mark, you know, Mark, who's not in the corner. Mark, who's been exiled. Mark was telling me, oh, you should watch this. And, you know, Mark, I, I talked to Joey on Christmas, on New Year's Eve. Joey was over at my house on New Year's Eve. And, and Joey said, yeah, yeah, you, me, and Mark should do a video on Sam Harris. I thought that's a great idea. So too bad Mark's not in the corner, can't, can't do the video with us anymore. He's so exiled. Um, but Mark was at this conference, and Father Eric was at this conference, and Dr. Jim was at this conference. And I don't even know how many people they got at this conference. You know, we had this other conference in Washington, D.C. last summer, which was a great conference where we had Marcus from Ireland and we had Joe, uh, just with Joe, he was there and Father Eric was there. And so we're doing these small conferences. And I think these small conferences are absolutely tremendous. I can't go to all of them. None of us could go to all of them. And of course, the Symbolic World Conference is coming up in February. It doesn't look like I'll be going to that one. But this, this movement generating conferences, and of course, things can happen at conferences that can't normally happen. And again, part of what's happening is YouTube channels are emerging, and there are way more than just these two YouTube channels that are emerging. But what we see happening is a network. And so there are personal relationships between us. We've known each other. We've talked to each other. And all of this kind of thing is really important for having something happen, happen. And I was who today, uh, Luke, Luke was talking about the, he was using Inscape language. And it's like, gosh, what is he? I kind of have a sense of what he means by Inscape. But so that, that's what Ted was talking about. So let's, let's listen to some of this because I think actually a lot of this is sort of good on-ramp. And what I think people should take from this, 
what you should take from this. And one of the things that as you dig deeper into the corner and begin to discover is that you know, it's, you know, so Luke is doing something and Grizz is here with his Gilligan hat on and um, and others are coming in. And of course, Chad is here. And, and the more people participate, the more they are known. But there's no central knowing. I can't name everyone who participates, but there'll be other little Again, I always image it, I always picture it sort of like tidal pools in an estuary. And that's exactly what you want to have happen because it's in the context of these individual relationships that really good things grow and then sort of level up into other areas and language goes out and, um, and things, things develop. And this is exactly the kind of thing we want to see. Okay, we're going to start and Ted's going to read poetry. Now for... As I was thinking about this today and thinking about what poetry means and how it works and the function it serves, I think it has a lot to do with, I think poetry thrives when the structures underneath have sort of deteriorated or let go and new structures need to emerge. And the kind of looseness that poetry that poetry relies upon is important. And then the new connections that grow, you know, when you think about, let's say a broken bone, when a bone breaks, obviously there's a sever, there's a, there's a physical dislocation. And then when they set the bone, they set the bone so that the bone will heal. The, the, the little, the tiny little things will find each other and will mend. Now I would imagine that in many ways, especially if the bone isn't set well, there'll be all kinds of new associations that go into that that functioning of the bone that is mended. And, and part of what we have going on right now in our culture, thanks to the internet and thanks to a whole bunch of things, is that all of the associations that were cemented for the last 500 years in modernity, many of them are coming undone. And new associations need to be made. And they're not going to be made exactly how they were made before. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the break and the rupturing. But again, it's more like an earthquake where there's sort of a shifting. And, well, let's let's listen to him. He's going to read some poetry. And then he's going to talk about what poetry is. And I thought this was really good. That's really what I want to get. I, that's kind of the only thing I need to say to get started. Um if you want to know what any of these poems were at the end, just let me know and I can, I can, I can tell them all to you. But I'm going to start with two poems by Hopkins. Um, and the first one is called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. As kingfishers catch fire, as dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoor each one dwells, selves goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say... Okay, now let's introduce the term word salad, because word salad became a meme of someone's just babbling and it's unintelligible. Well, if anything is unintelligible, it's poetry, right? And when you think about it in that way, you begin to say, well, if that is unintelligible, what is intelligible? Well, intelligibility is a very tight relationship between 
things. But now remember, in modernity, things are like little Amazon boxes that come via the Amazon truck or the UPS. Or they're, they're discrete. They're a world of objects. They're the things. And, and modernity was just presupposed that all of these things were mapped and out there. And anybody who walks in a room can see a thing, which is why the start of that book, you know, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, is why can't everyone see the thing? Well, why can't we all see the gorilla? Or why can't we see, why can't, you know, beautiful women see low status men? Or why can't um, high status men see low status women? Why are they invisible? Why do we even use that language? And, and why suddenly now is all of this happening? Well, again, things are fracturing, and which means that things that, Sounds like something out of Tolkien. Things that were unseen before are now being seen, and things that were so obvious before are no longer obvious now. More, the just man justices keeps grace, that keeps all his goings. Graces acts in God's eyes, what in God's eyes he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. This is called God's grandeur. <clears throat> the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. Okay. So, for some people, here, listening to that is like, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. What, what does this connect to? I don't know. I don't care. You're wasting my time. Unsubscribe. Click away. Others are like, well, I know how to do this. Because this is, this is a different mode that you go in. And, and now suddenly, because it's a mode, there's a status hierarchy that you have to contend to. A status hierarchy over your time. A status hierarchy over other people watching you. Maybe poetry is a secret passion that you have. Maybe there are different status hierarchies and poetry push, pushes you up the hierarchy. Maybe liking poetry pushes you down the hierarchy. It probably You probably have multiple different hierarchies in your life and some it pushes you up and some it pushes you down. Other people can say this is a waste of time. Why on earth are we still remembering it? And and you might not have never heard anything from Gerard Manley Hopkins, but you've heard the name. Yeah, oh yeah, he's famous. And boop, up the status hierarchy. But you know, Christ plays in ten thousand places. Eugene Peterson, not Jordan Peterson. Eugene Peterson used that for cover of a book, and you know, on and on and on and on and on. So I'm going to start with a quote from a book that I'm deeply indebted to in this topic, and it is called World is Word. It's by a professor down at the University of Dallas on Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, which I haven't actually ever read all of. But there are several chapters of it that are kind of powerhouses in my mind. And in that, the, the, uh, Dr. Ward quotes Hopkins talking about his poetry and his perception of the world. And he says this, 
But indeed, I have often felt that when I have been in this mood and felt the depth of an instress, or how fast the inscape holds a thing, that nothing is so pregnant and straightforward to the truth as a simple yes and is. I am going to read that a second time because if you don't know what I'm talking about, which you probably don't because Hopkins had a propensity to make his own words. But indeed, I have often felt when I have been in this mood and felt the depth of an instress, that's when we're going to come back to, or how fast the inscape, that's another one, holds a thing, that nothing is so pregnant and straightforward to the truth as a simple yes and is. So where I want to start is with subjectivity and individual experience. This has obviously been a thing that people have been wrestling with for a while, right? We're individuals, there's all sorts of even basic biological things that contribute to different experiences of the world around us. If you're like this and then you bend down, the room looks different, right? So your height, how well your eyes work, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, the way your voice sounds, how good your hearing is, all this. And then there's experiential stuff. There's your education, all these things obviously contribute to different perceptions of the world around us. This is part of the reason that we enjoy talking to people, other people. It's part of the reason we hate talking to other people because of this difference. But we want to get to the truth, right? Nothing is so pregnant and straightforward to the truth as a simple yes and is. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the fact that people approach things differently? They see things differently. They talk about things differently. And how do you deal with the fact that you have things that you can't seem to communicate? Or even if you do communicate, how can you be sure if you have communicated them? How do you know if someone else has seen the same things, has heard the same things? Like this is, it's an old problem. And it's a key problem for us as human beings because part of what we're so dependent on are each other. I put something on Twitter last week, your theory can't save you. And it generated a lot of interesting responses via Twitter. And, and someone said, yeah, but if you have a theory about, let's say, physics and math, that can help you make a bridge. Ah, but in order to make that bridge, what you need is all the stuff he's talking about here. That's what you need in order to make that bridge. And, and in that sense, it's all of the underneath stuff. It gets mapped onto us when we're young, that gets built into our culture. It's all of these things that actually enables us to do all sorts of other things. Now, one of the interesting things that's happening in the world is as globalization is breaking down, and in fact, the, breaking, the breakdown of globalization is a function of this, that there have been some really strong underneaths that have governed the world since, for the last few centuries, especially the last, uh, the 20th, 20th century and the 21st century, and it's all sort of breaking down. And you see that in the breakdown of globalization and the breakdown of, of certain networks. And we had, a, we had a shudder of that in COVID with the global supply network. And now suddenly countries are more anxious about that global su supply network. Intel and TCMC are building foundries in the United States. Um, companies are moving their production from China to Mexico. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety in Europe about petroleum because, of course, they, they cut off 
the Russians in terms of selling oil and gas, but all that other stuff have to, has to flow up through the, through the Red Sea. The, this, group that, this group in Yemen who is aligned with the Iranians are, are threatening shipping through over Israel and Gaza. I mean, so you see that all of this stuff is relationship. You say, oh, but technology, ships still work regardless of these relationships. Oh, but they sail and are rebuilt and are maintained and are funded and are destroyed over all of these relationships, all of these underneaths. And all of those underneaths are all about human cooperation. And if you don't have human cooperation, nothing is going to get done, partly because everyone's energy is just going to be spent fighting each other. This is something you learn very quickly in a church, that while if people are fighting each other in a church, the church isn't going to be getting anything done. It's a very unhappy place, something that we're wrestling with in the United States. To what degree are we fighting each other? Now, part of the problem is, is that we're navigating and recalibrating through these screens. And someone, someone told me yesterday about this meme about Trump smelling bad and him being incontinent and all of this stuff. And I hadn't heard anything of this. Until, so then I go ahead and Google it. Oh, yeah. But that's a different echo chamber. So I've got, we've got all of these little echo chambers and all of our sense making is happening in all of these little echo chambers. And of course, we all think we're seeing the whole world. I have the whole internet at my disposal. I can Google anything, but I don't. It's because of all of these underneaths. It's because all of, we've called it sense making. We've called it all sorts of things. We called it mapping. All of this stuff going on. And we all think, well, I'm seeing the whole world because the whole world sees like I do. So I stand up and I say something and everybody looks at me. It's like, oh, well, what does he mean? Well, I might as well be speaking poetry. What is going on? And so actually poetry is in some ways an example of after the bone is broken, after the rupture has happened, the tiny little elements all in our all in our imaginaries are beginning to feel for one another and put together new associations and new relationships. Now, I, I didn't play the part, but one of the things that Ted noted was that I did this conference because I wanted to give this speech. That's a very legitimate reason to do a conference. Now, not everybody will hear your speech. Maybe not everyone will understand it if it's a crappy speech. But to do a conference, you basically have to take a pretty significant financial risk, depending on what your situation is, of maybe renting a facility and, and promising honorariums for speakers and paying expenses and paying lodging. But if you want to give a speech and you've got twenty dollars or $30,000 that you're willing to risk, you can do a conference. But you have to have and have created all of the underneaths. And what this corner of the internet is really about you look at Justin Wells, or Kel Zeldin, or Grim Grizz, or Luke, or Chad, is, well, it's, it's all of the underneaths. Because this is, in fact, what this little corner is doing. That is why, in some ways, what we're doing is so akin to poetry. Even though I'm not someone who is sort of majored in this, but it, I shouldn't be surprised that here it is. Poetry is bubbling up because it's all of these little elements looking to find associations. And he'll get there in this talk. And I would say most people look at that and they're like, yeah, that's that's when postmodernism came in, when people started saying like, ooh, we've got this issue of subjectivity and how do we resolve all this? And the answer is, of course, that's not when people started wrestling with this because nothing is ever like that. And 
Father Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was a Jesuit priest in the first half, of the, in the middle of the 1800s, he was from the UK, what's, yeah, what's now the UK, he was mostly in England and then he ended up in Dublin at the end of his life. Um, he and his mentor, Cardinal John, St. Cardinal John Henry Newman, who I know some people in this audience have a deep love for, um, the two of them were wrestling with this exact problem. How do you deal with the multiplicity of subjective experience? It's exactly that wrestling that actually drew me to Hopkins. So a little bit of biography. When I was in college, at some point I thought I should probably figure out how to like poetry. And so I asked someone I knew for a recommendation and they said, Hopkins and Milton. So I read Pied Beauty and sure, whatever. I mean, now it's great, but I just didn't like really do anything for me. I'm, I'm, I'm being perfectly honest here. So then I thought, well, I guess I'll try the other one. And so then I started reading Paradise Lost. <laughs> And that was my, that was the second poem that I think I chose to read. Um, it's not my recommendation. If you're going to like try to figure out poetry that you're like, yeah, I'll just sit down and read the whole paradise lost because I don't know, it's like 12,000 lines of poetry and English that's trying to be Latin. So there you go. Not, not, not a great entry point, but when I came back to Hopkins about two years after that, yeah, this would have been 2014. Um, when I read, I think it was as Kingfisher's Catch Fire, it struck me that Hopkins was talking about something that I had personally experienced. These, let's say a flash of perception that I would occasionally be granted times when I'm out walking by myself or something like that. Now that flash is important. If you go look at Peterson, a bunch of Peterson's conversations around Genesis, when he's talking about the burning bush, it's that flashing. It's that thing that catches our attention. It's the flame. It's, 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 it's this, it, that's what it's like. It's like a flash. That's what, it's an enlightening. Look, look at all the associations. Think of all the little, the little things looking to, okay, let's, let's find connections. That, you know, Wordsworth, the poem that Emma read from Wordsworth, right? There's this particular kind of experience that apparently people have stumbled upon and then it causes them to write poetry because I guess we don't have a word for it. Father Eric brought up in his talk earlier today, this um, after wit, you know, or the, the French word for, for staircase, staircase wit, right? There are these things that we're trying to get a hold on, right? How do we talk about that feeling, right? Or in proof rock, right? That's not what I meant at all, right? There's this grappling with how do we bridge the inside outside, the reason, well, there's many reasons that's so important. One of the reasons that that's so important is that's how we're in a relationship. Like if you're going to be in a relationship with another being, with another person, sorry, not another being, right? You can have relationships with all sorts of beings that don't involve that sharing, right? I don't need that with a tree. I don't need it with a rock. I don't need it with a dog, but I need it with another person. So if we're going to be in a relation with another person, you have to deal with this subjective quality. So Newman's, Newman and Hopkins were dealing with this and they're trying to figure out what do we do with this multiplicity of personal experience. And this is what Newman came to. He came to this idea that there are many possible apprehensions that are proper to a single entity. And I'm reading a quote, if this sounds stilted, that's why, because it's a quote. This is written language, not spoken language. Since a reality is what is intelligible to any person, everything real has latent in itself 
and endless store of real apprehensions that people may learn to know. A relative infinite, such as Hopkins finds in the human soul. Okay, so that right there, a relative infinite. This notion that every bit of reality has an endless possible unfolding that could hold for you. And when I say reality or thing... Okay, now, yesterday I talked about combinatorial explosiveness. I mean, that is part of the bedrock here, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute. That is what is destroying modernity. That understanding, that knowledge, that realization. And then the question is, once that explosion happens, how can the pieces find each other again and put each other back? and put something back together, which is not only functional, but hopefully even better than what we had before. I want to broaden this out. I don't mean just physical objects. I mean phenomena. I mean words. I mean persons. Any, anything that you can relate to, right? Anything that you can have an intelligible relationship to. There is What Newman is saying here is that there's an infinite possible number of ways to relate to it. Okay. Is that good? Well, maybe it's good because it says that our subjective approach to a thing may or may not actually be true because we're no longer looking at it and saying, well, I think about something one way and Father Eric thinks about something one way and Parker thinks about something one way and they're all different. And so one of us is right and the other people are wrong, right? Because that's one of the traps you could get into with subjective experiences to say, well, if there's a thing out there that we're trying to connect to, that we're trying to see, and we're seeing differently, it means most people are wrong and one person's right, or maybe no one's right. And Newman is trying to get away from that. He's trying to say, no, 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 hold on, look. The capacity of reality is actually to bring forth functionally an infinite number of possible apprehensions that are all appropriate to it. And you can think about this on a, on a basic level, and you can think, okay, a great example is a tree, again, why is a tree a great example? Because you could go out in one day and look at it many times and the light is changing over the course of the day, right? Or you Okay, and now part of what's beneath us culturally is this assumption that, well, all of these appropriations are the same. No, they're not the same because otherwise there wouldn't be multiple of them. Are of the same value? No, that won't be true either. So we can put them in a simple status hierarchy, a simple hierarchy? Well, probably not. Because a tree you can put in a variety of different hierarchies if you need shade or want shelter during a rainstorm or want to build a boat or a home or a chair or if you're looking to change a landscape and cover it with trees or if you're looking to uh, grow birds who live in trees and so you're going to put a whole bunch of particular kinds of trees that do... I mean, notice that his, his observation is really key because what he's basically saying, as was said earlier in the poetry, it's basically Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's God number two. The whole earth is full of his glory. God number one. It's all this relationship and this dynamic. So if you go to the Ian McGill, Chris, John Verveke, Daniel Smachtenberger video, you'll see that, in fact, that video is full of that kind of thing because, well, process theology will come about a little bit later, but basically what process theology does is recognize what Peterson and Verveke and many others have been saying recently, which is that 
it's not looking for a thing or the thing. And notice how this is mirrored in terms of the whole debate about atheism and, you know, is there a God or isn't there a God? And in many ways, what everyone is saying is, well, everybody knows that there's God, but what's your relationship with it? And atheists, well, I'm against it. Oh, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? And that's part of the reason Peterson with Sam Harris was telling him, you know, no, you, you actually have a relationship with this God. You just are completely unaware with it. And again, even using those language, even using that language sort of couches it in terms that are going to be really unhelpful to a lot of you. And some of you reacted. I know that. But all of this relationality is when things break apart, how do you put them back together? You could look at it at different times of the year, especially if it's like a deciduous tree in this part of the world. It, sometimes it's got leaves on it. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the leaves are green. Sometimes they're red. And now I'm sort of doing poetry because hopefully you're starting to see a tree differently, right? Because it's like, well, that's kind of a weird thing that it's just like there's this object. That now notice what he, notice how he, now I'm doing poetry. Oh, what, what does it mean to do poetry? Oh, it means to sort of do word salad. No, that's not what it means. What it means is to sort of, I think of I think of tendrils looking to connect and create new productive fertile associations that the sum of which can create a new world. That lives outside that changes all the time and it's got this own its own life. You're starting to see it a little bit. Okay. Which of those is the proper way to see the tree? Well, it's like oh, they all are, right? So you're looking at the this is what Hopkins means when he says inscape. So Inscape, he's forming it from the language that we use for like landscape, it's inner landscape of a thing, right? And so when you think about a landscape, just like the tree. But now again, notice it can be inner, it can be under, it can be over, it can be behind. It's all this relationality with respect to seeing and the mode of, and the mode of seeing. It's not something you see with your eyes. You do use your eyes to see it, but what you're looking at is sort of like the God on the beach. It's the relationality. Because when I'm looking at the relationality between things, I'm looking at relationality. And you say, well, is relationality the kind of thing I can grab? No, you can't grab it. If I, it, Can it live without oxygen? Well, that kind of depends on... You know, it's again, it's sort of like one of my favorite C.S. Lewis illustrations talking to I've used it before. It catches the imagination. Lewis was very clever talking to a child about sex and and, you know, probably in, in age appropriate terms. And then the child asks the question, will there be chocolate? And of course, the adult kind of smiles because it's sort of the knowing and unknowing is that the child is on to something and there may be chocolate, but. The point is that um, the question the question reveals that the questioner can't know what the adult can't and shouldn't know what the adult in fact knows, and that's again all of the all of the texture and complication of knowing. You can stand in different places. There's different vantage points. There's different lighting. And then there's you, right? Because then you can come to the tree and you could be an artist and see it one way. You could be a painter and see it one way. You could be a home builder and you're like, oh, that tree's gonna fall in the house and destroy it. You could be an arborist and think that'd be a really hard tree to cut down. You could be 
a carpenter and think about, right, the potential in that tree, right? Because there's not just the actuality of it, there's also the potential, right? When you plant an acorn, some people might think, oh yeah, this can, that could be a big tree someday, right? That's a proper apprehension of it as well. So we're trying to get, we're trying to get some notion here that there is a unity to all of the ways that you can relate to something, both potential, actual, what you might call objective or subjective. And Hopkins designates this as the endscape, right? It's a, it is something that you can, that, not only that you can, that you have to enter into when you approach a thing. Now, what's interesting is that Hopkins says the endscape isn't the thing. The endscape is your apprehension of the thing. And here he's following John Dunn Scotius, who my only approach to John Dunn Scotius is through Hopkins. So I'm not even going to pretend to tell you what his philosophy is. Oh boy. Oh boy. Nominalism. Ah! About. But he is very particular on the fact that there is a thing there that God knows. God sees the thing utterly. Because of this possible relative infinity, this, this relative infinity in our perceptions of things and as limited beings, you never actually exhaust anything in your perception of it, right? There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, right? And yet nature is never spent, right? Hopkins has this notion deep inside of him that reality is rich and it's full. And if you don't limit yourself to say, yeah, I get it. I know what that is. If you approach it with this notion of a tremendous amount there, something that you could never exhaust, and all of a sudden, well, then kingfishers can catch fire and dragonflies draw flame, right? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Great. Okay. But we've still got to bridge the subjectivity gap, right? Because I'm seeing these things in this inscape, and you're seeing these things in this inscape. And what are we going to do about that, right? You can see it from different angles. One of the options in the 1800s was to say that you can't, right? You, you just like, you see something and I see something, we see different things. And so when we use the same designator for that, the same word to designate that, we either mean the exact same thing, in which case communication isn't worthwhile, or we mean different things, in which case we can't understand each other. There's no possible overlap there. And I would say that's absurd because we can communicate. <laughs> but the reason that that's absurd is it assumes a one-to-one -one correspondence with language to, op to object. And that's not... Okay, and right there, we're barking up the door of certain aspects of modernity. Now, this is not all of modernity. Modernity, just like other things, modernity is too large to sort of encapsulate in there. But this, this the vision of being able to distill everything into one-to-one -one correspondence and wield it that because that's really the motivation that if we can if we can map it all this is again back to Ian McGilchrist this is the emissary this is the emissary's wish this is the emissary's dream if we can map it all then then we can what then we can have it then we can wield it then we can control it not how language works, but how the, op the, the, the alternative is a many-to-many -many correspondence. And I'm indebted to Mark for bringing this up. So thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Or look, what, what the way language... It's too bad Mark isn't in the corner. He was in the room in this tiny little conference. 
in what I would call this little corner of the internet. I wasn't there, Verveke wasn't there, Jonathan Peugeot wasn't there, but... Language works as it's a many-to-many -many correspondence, and I would say that it becomes more clear when you start doing poetry, right? Because then you say, oh, well, what does, what does Eliot mean when he says a patient, right? This patient etherized in the sky. What does that mean? And there's one way, there's one, the sort of shallow answer is to say, oh, well, he means God. It's like, done. We can, you know, we can move on. It's like, that's not poet. That's not good poetry. Good poetry is never this means this. It's like, what is Beatrice in the Divine Comedy? Where did I see that? Oh, yes. Oh, the internet brings me such strange places. Uh, Mr. A. This was a very interesting video that I, I sort of got brought into um, by a, a, someone to, to Justin Brierley. Some of those obscure appearances were eventually compiled into Mr. A Number 1, published in 1973. The creator, Steve Ditko, would continue to write, draw, and self-publish Mr. A stories throughout the rest of his career. Even with a casual glance, one can easily determine that Mr. A is not a traditional comic book hero. He neither has superpowers nor an origin story. One day the intrepid, morally rigorous reporter, Rex Grain, decided to put on a white mask and an all-white suit. Then he began to dole out justice with his fists and a gun. There's no inciting incident. There's no call to action. There's no training montage with a new wave soundtrack. There's just some guy with too much free time who is driven by the need to force others to conform to his beliefs concerning proper moral behavior. Or suffer the consequences. Mr. A's civilian identity is basically indistinguishable from his hero identity. The white mask he wears to disguise himself is literally his own face, displaying a disdainful, condescending expression. If you think about it... I, I mean, this is just amazing. You can't make this up. It's not really a mask. It's a frozen declaration of what Mr. A feels towards those he deems criminals. It's probably more accurate to call Mr. A a comic book protagonist, not a hero. And Mr. A's primary antagonist is, roughly, everyone who isn't Mr. A. Steve Ditko created the character shortly after he quit working on the extremely popular comic book he co-created and co-wrote, Spider-Man. While Ditko worked on Spider-Man, he discovered and was subsequently influenced by objectivism, the mode of philosophy founded by Ayn Rand. This influence and Ditko's understanding of objectivism became the foundation of this character. To truly understand Mr. A's motivations and reasoning, you need a very basic, Wikipedia level of understanding about objectivism. Luckily, the founder of objectivism, Ayn Rand, summarized the philosophy herself in the afterword to Atlas Shrugged, so I can just directly quote her. My philosophy, in essence, is the concept of man as a heroic being, with his own happiness as the moral pursuit of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Ditko's interest in upholding the objectivist principles inspired him to create a hero that exemplified the rules he believed to be important. Namely, there is good and there is evil, and there is nothing in between. It's also hard not to notice the similarities between Mr. A and another Ditko creation. The question. Both were created at roughly the same time in 1967 and somewhat embody the same view of the world. However, the question is an intentionally compromised, comics code-friendly version of Mr. A. The main difference between the two being, the question upheld traditional hero values, while Mr. A was guided by a new, very strict philosophy. 
Mr. A is the personification of one of the most well-known objectivist principles, A is A, which is, by the way, totally taken from Aristotle's law of identity. Basically, this means that reality is self-evident. It exists, and its existence isn't open to interpretation. Following that logic, good and evil also exist, and the difference between the two are self-evident and not open to interpretation. Admittedly, that's a very rudimentary examination of objectivism. Now, what's interesting is, that, again, when the underneath is holding, you can... people can afford that. Now, there are many different underneaths. This is where you get into some of these... Um, some of these integral layers and and the ideas of of the people but when the underneaths let go and when you have pluralism because what pluralism basically is you've got you've got different underneaths and competing underneaths but they can't see what's underneath they just see what people are doing and they're interpreting and it, it, we're back to this we're back to this question in this time period when the underneaths let go and A is A, and again, what, what Ted just said is that, well, poetry is the opposite, right? Books have been, God, it's like, done, we can, you know, we can move on. It's like, that's not poet, that's not good poetry. Good poetry is never, this means this. It's like, what is Beatrice in the Divine Comedy, right? Books have been written about who Beatrice is, why? Is she divine love? Is she a woman that lived in Florence in the 1300s? Is she, she's all of it, right? These things could, she can, there, there can, there can be a relationship where one thing bears out many things. Okay, so if, we, if we're okay with the many-to-many -many correspondence, then all of a sudden we can actually communicate with one another. Because now we can say, we're referring to the same thing and we're seeing different things about it. But when I say one thing, it has a lot of different things. And look, this comes out in normal conversation. This is how conversations flow. I say one thing, I mean it. Oh, that fires something in your head and you go off in that direction. And I don't say, no, 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 that's not what I was talking about. You have to go in this direction. It's like, wow, I didn't, you've, you've actually opened up the inscape of my statement by doing that, by relating. Some people do do exactly that. And they usually don't get too far with a conversation, but their underneath remains intact. Bring it to something. So, Poetry as same art, right? As something that we create and we look at and we're like, that's poetry, right? You know, this book, this is a book of poetry, right? What is that poetry? What it's doing is it's taking this notion of many to many correspondence and elevating it to an exceptionally conscious degree where you're able to see it and say, oh, that's an image or it's a symbol or it's a metaphor. But language is functioning in a very similar way all the time, just slightly more, um, there's a little bit less wiggle room there, let's say, right? So you're, you're opening these images up, but it's that same process of many to many correspondence that lets us communicate. We're still not there yet. We still can't actually communicate though, because if when you refer to something or when you see something, there's an infinite possible number of interpretations, there's an infinite number of possible apprehensions, how do you decide which the right one is? How do I decide which one Father Eric means? Which now, some of you are going to complain about his use of the word infinite, and I agree with you. So you can leave the comment, and I'll see it. And I'm just saying I agree with you. There is 
infinite is a particular thing. There might not, there's probably not infinite, but it's a number too large for any of us to deal with within the tiny time frames of our lives. Which one? It's the problem of attention. I mean, spoiler, there it is, right? This is, this is a lot of the people in this room are here because of Peugeot, Peterson, and Verveke. And I would say probably the fundamental insight that the three of them have together is it's not intrinsically obvious where you should give your attention in any situation. So I was thinking about this example of cutting down a tree. I think we were talking about this last night. And in the, mo in the act of cutting down a tree, there are certain things that are really important to pay attention to, like how's the top of the tree moving? Can I feel the fib wood fibers in it popping? Are there people nearby, right? These are the things I should be paying attention to. I shouldn't be paying attention to what color are my pants? What am I gonna have for dinner? You know, what's, what your model is that car that just drove down the road? These are all things that I, how many blades of grass are there within a square meter of me? It's like, and it goes on and on and on. And you have to say, okay, I have to organize my attention some way. And with felling a tree, it's pretty obvious because we've kind of got some things baked into us. Like, I don't want to die and I don't want to cause mayhem, right? And so that I can, I can go from there and I can start to order my attention. But when you move out of these very, like, let's say, uh, proximate tasks, when you're in very, when you, when you move out of that into to more unbounded space, then it becomes a lot harder to order your attention. So my thesis in this first part is essentially this, that poetry works to order your attention and not just in the sense of what do I do in this room? Who do I pay attention to? What do I pay attention to? But within that thing, what do I pay attention to about it? Right? What are the right ways to relate to something? When I look at it, what should I see? What could I see that I've never seen before? It broadens up that inscape and then it orders it. And this, and, and it doesn't just prioritize it, let's say, it also continues to form those little connections, which are the rehealing after the rupture, which is why poetry is so perennial and it rises and falls because it rises and falls based on the need we have to, our associations have been broken. Now we need new associations. And again, they're not one-to-one, -one. They're, they're multiple. And, and they're in fact are stacks. And this is the same thing that Father Eric was talking about with language, right? When it's, if you don't have a word for it, it's harder to see it, okay? There are certain things that we have words for, right? We individual words for, because we have a limited. Okay. If you don't have words for it, it's harder to see it. I've been doing a lot of thinking about naming. Adam names the animals. So part of my text this week is the beginning of the gospel of Mark. They went to, they went to Capernaum. Jesus has called, um, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as teachers of the law. Now, right away, you should pause there and ask yourself, what's, what's, what's going on that the teachers of the law didn't feel they had authority, people didn't feel they had authority, but they felt Jesus had authority. Now, when we read that, we all can sort of identify with that because we've heard people that sometimes 
we heard this person, they seemed to have authority, and this person didn't seem to have authority. And so we're, but we don't, we don't know why, and sometimes we may decide that we were wrong, and I mean, that's all part of sort of human discovery and what it means to go. But, but, but right, people seemed that Jesus had authority. What does that mean? And I'm going to bring back in my Tolkien Middle Earth thing. Tolkien has a degree of authority over Middle-earth. Now, Tolkien is a sub-creator. He doesn't have endless authority over Middle-earth. But he's got a degree of authority over Middle-earth. Because if, if Tolkien misuses his authority and, in a sense, writes things or makes decisions about characters and people and places that break it, then the spell is broken and Middle-earth sort of evaporates. So in that sense, Middle-earth is dependent upon... Tolkien's sub-authority beneath another authority that is sort of hard for us to think about. Because again, you can say, well, I, I can sit down and I can write any word I want. And there's, you know, I can make up my own words. I can do this. Yeah, you can do all that. You're sitting in front of a keyboard. You have all these different keys. You can press any key you want into notepad or word or what have you. And, but this is exactly what Ted is talking about, but it's not going to it's not going to begin to build something. And so when Tolkien writes about Middle Earth, what, what's amazing is that he has built something. And and part of, of course, what everybody knows about Tolkien is that Tolkien has done all of the sub-creating before, all of the backstory of the elves, and he's connected the stuff to the, the northern stuff that the Inklings that Lewis and Tolkien were so interested in. And so he's been weaving all of this together so that, for example, when Tolkien has to tell stories to his children, he starts talking about hobbits and goblins. And The Hobbit is a children's story. And, and he writes it, and it sells. It's like, and then the publishers come and say, well, write, do, do, do that again, because it's sold. Oh, okay. But it's like, no, I want to do something a little different. Something is calling in me to... And so that, that way, Tolkien doesn't have total control, the hobbits and the, the orcs, because you know, I had to use orcs instead of goblins, because, you know, again, this is all part of what Tolkien was within. He, he, had to, he moved away from goblins, and he went towards orcs and... Um, on and on and on and on, but but Tolkien wasn't wasn't supreme master, but he had authority, and so now you know when we wonder about things about Middle Earth, we go to Tolkien or we go to his son, and and they have authority, or we go to others who seem to have been well read in it. And he has authority, and so they see Jesus, and Jesus seems to have authority. And now it follows in in the whole series that I'm preaching on, all the way to the end of chapter one in the Gospel of Mark, is Jesus has authority because well. A little bit later, he goes to Simon's house and his mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and, and they told Jesus about her and he went to her and took her hand and helped her up and the fever left her and she began to wait on them. So she was, she was fine. That evening, the sunset, the people brought Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And we're going to think about that demon-possessed thing because what are, what are those demons doing? Those demons sort of disconnect See, now this is where underneath gets. The demons sort of disconnect all of the underneath beneath people. You may say, well, it makes them more powerful. In some ways they can. You know, you have the Gettering demoniac who's breaking change and walking around naked. And I mean, he's deeply disconnected, but it's not, it's not the kind of disconnection that we want. And Jesus has, Jesus seems to have the power. We see the power, but 
Jesus' power and the demon's power are very different in character. So that evening after sunset, oh, now it's in the dark. This is Jesus, in a sense, harrowing Capernaum. He's, he's you know, he goes into the night. Gospel Mark is so full of this. You have the sea and you have the wilderness and you have the night. And Jesus is just this. Jesus is just this brawler. He is the man who, who, who goes, who raids the strong man's house. The strong man in that sense being the devil. And he raids it and he, and he just pushes them over. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And notice the relationship between those two, the sick and the demon-possessed. Well, what do they have in common? It's not exactly, now again, in modernity, we struggle with that because, again, all of our underneaths were rewired. But the sick and the demon-possessed and the whole town gathered at the door, and you almost have a sense of, it's, it's, is, is this like what happened in Sodom where, where the angels come and... And the people of Sodom bang on the door and say, send these guys out that we might molest them. The old town gathers at the door and Jesus heals many who had various diseases. He raids Satan's kingdom. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And it's like, well, what's, what's, what's with that? Early the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Where he prayed, so it's wilderness. Sort of, didn't use wilderness, a solitary place. You know it's wilderness, but the valence is different. Simon and his 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 companions went to look for him. They didn't go with him. Jesus just to get the sense that he just he's healing all these people. Maybe takes a short nap, gets up early and leaves. And it's like, well, where where did he go? And you always have the sense that the disciples are just a little afraid of him, as well they should be. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Yeah, yeah, they're looking for me because I did what I did. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Why? He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. That's not what's at question here. Be clean with a word. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Nobody seems to listen to Jesus' strong warnings. They're not enough afraid of him. See that you don't tell anyone this, but go yourself, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began talking freely, spreading the word. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Jesus is on the fringe. Jesus is in the wilderness. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. But I saved the first story for last. Because there's something in the story that always sort of surprised me. They went to Capernaum when the, when the Sabbath came. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. But then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now, this is my favorite 
This is my favorite commentary from the Gospel of John. It's, uh, oh shoot, I'm going to lose my place, um, by William Lane. There we go. The authority in view is not merely the power to decide, but to compel decision. But again, it's, it's the remapping of the underneaths. Within the synagogue, there was a man possessed by an unclean spirit. His personality had been damaged to the point that the demonic power had usurped the center of his self and spoke through him. The disturbance which Jesus brings was expressed in the excited response of the man who sensed in Jesus a threat to his very existence. His cry of terror expressed in verse 24 is laden with the language of defense and resistance. The demoniac does not confess the dignity of Jesus, but uses the acceptable terms of opposition in an attempt to disarm him. The initial expression is a common formula in the Old Testament within the context of combat and judgment, and it's roughly equivalent to, you have no business with us yet. It is probable that the following statement is not a question, but a declaration. You have come to destroy us. The note of conflict implied is important, for the, for the demonic power understands more clearly than the people the decisive significance of the presence of Jesus. In other words, the demoniac knows in some ways more clearly than everyone else, but the valence, they're seeing the same situation, but... It's looking very different. The people are plagued by the illness and the dissolution that the demons bring. It, it's, it, the proper functioning is torn apart. Improper associations are wedded and, and the underneath is very different. That the, demon, that, the, that the demonic powers possess a certain knowledge of Jesus' identity is clear from the cry of recognition. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit recognizes Jesus as the Holy One of God, the bearer of the Holy Spirit, and between the Holy Spirit and an unclean spirit, there exists a deadly antithesis that the demon knows. The formula of recognition, however, does not stand alone. It's part of a larger complex material exhibiting the striking difference between the forms of address employed by the demoniacs and the titles used by ordinary sick individuals. Notice how the man says, if you are willing... Hey, you clearly don't know who I am or why I have come, and Jesus is indignant. The latter group appears, the people appear to address teacher Jesus as Lord, teacher, son of David, master. The demoniacs, however, address Jesus as the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. That's what the demons are saying. Well, why, why on earth would the demons out Jesus like that? You would think that if they say this, well, if they would say that, what? Everybody knows that demons are liars, so could it be a lie? No, it's not a lie. There's something else going on here. It has everything to do with naming. And actually, naming has everything to do with framing. The contrast in address is an important characteristic distinguishing ordinary sickness from demonic possession and reflects superior knowledge of the demons. The recognition formula is not a confession, but a defensive attempt to gain control of Jesus in accordance with the common concept of that day, and the use of precise name of an individual or spirit must secure mastery over him. And you'll find this in, there's also all this sort of lore that you can find in Pentecostal deliverance ministries. Well, once you get the name, 
And you always hear that. You think, I always, when I'd hear that in my younger days, when I was going around much more in Pentecostal circles, it always seemed much more like a magic trick. And now, no, it's not a magic trick at all. In fact, you see that naming thing all over the place. Earlier in the video, I mentioned that someone had told me about, um, you know, Trump smells like poop or something like that. If you just Google that, you'll find, you know. And and yes, I know some of you are going to leave comments about, no, he doesn't. I, okay, okay. Trump is not the point of any of this. And this is, you, you don't know what power a name has. Nobody's name has been more powerful than Donald Trump. But what's amazing is that, Donald Trump's name is given power by the opposition. Same with Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden. I mean, it's always the opposition that tends to that tends to have it rise up. But the power of Donald Trump, especially in the 2016 campaign, was framing Pocahontas. Oh, you know, um, he he had names for all of his different oppositions, and those names stuck, and they stuck in the imaginary in the imagination, and he framed them. And in some ways, that's how he was able to clear the stage. He named and he framed them all. It's tremendously powerful. That's why when I this person told me about this meme, I, I thought, oh, Donald Trump smelling. This is gonna be far more powerful than, you know, trying to, um, you know talk about January 6th or all of this other stuff. It just kind of goes over people's heads. But he smells like poop. Oh, that'll stick. That'll stick. Because suddenly, because it's very deep and it's very internal, it's very, it's a deep underneath that. Is he incontinent? Did he do so much drugs when he was younger that now he, he has to wear a diaper? Because, you know, he's always portraying himself as this big, strong man. And if word gets out that, well, you know, he's painted and he's quaffed and all of this, but he has to wear a diaper. And every now and then, you know, he... And then, of course, there's all these little memes and people turning away. And again, I'm not I'm not debating this at all. I don't know if it's true or not true, and I really don't even care. But the point is framing and naming, because in many ways, an effective naming is a framing. And once that frame is set, oh, it's powerful. It decides elections. It decides wars. It decides... Careers, it decides worlds, it decides marriages. It's the underneath. So here the demon thinks, I'm gonna get one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna frame Jesus, and Jesus just bats it away. You're not gonna frame me, you're gonna leave. And out he goes. Well, it's a potentially a, a difficult framing for Jesus, of course, because with those particular framings, it's sort of a death sentence in the communities where he's at. Now, of course, he's going to be killed but it's a you know there'll be charges of blasphemy against him and anybody who reads these texts jesus had three years of public ministry and anybody who reads these texts and knows the context would say huh, wow i can't imagine how he got three years in you know and, and that's what the demon's doing but this naming thing it's incredibly important because the naming effective naming just again i use often the example of woke go back Three, four years were critical race theory, just, just, just the name it. Then the name woke, bang, it clicks. Now suddenly, once the woke spirit was named, you could see it start to lose its power. Same with, they say, Trumpism. Um, once the Trumpism is named, 
begins to lose its power. When it's unnamed, it's still out there wild in the world and people can't chart it and see it. And so in many ways, the poetry and this, this poetic spirit is about getting a handle on things. We're limited And this is the same thing that Father Eric was talking about with language, right? When it's, if you don't have a word for it, it's harder to see it, okay? There are certain things that we have words for, right? We individual words for, because we have a limited, we're limited beings, right? This comes up over and over. We're limited beings. How many words could you remember? I don't know. Probably couldn't remember 5 million words. Are there 5 million things in the universe? There's a few more than that, right? There's a few more than 5 million things. And so there's, there's, a, there's a process of selection, right? And so we talk about the things that are important and we have words for the things that are important. The things that are less important, we have you build it together. You, you, you describe it, right? You, you have to, you have to circum, circumlocute. You have to, you have to work around it. You have to write about it. So one of my favorite examples of this and the way that it shows what's important is in Quechua, which is right. So it's a language that's, that's spoken in the Andes mountains and has like basically no etymological connection to any language in Europe. And they have a word there. It's a verb that means to bake corn in an oven that's never been used before. It's one word and you're like, oh, I see what's important to you because I don't have a word for that. I have to say corn that's baked in an oven for that's never been used before. And so you are treading really close when you're talking about the ability to speak about things to what people call like the, the, the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, which is this notion that you can't, your thought is bound by your language. And it's not a hard binding, right? Because obviously you can think things and feel things that you can't express, right? That's not what I meant at all. Again, it's like, how do you, you feel something that you can't bring out? What, what language does do though, is it constrains your attention. So it doesn't limit what you could see or think or feel, but it orders it, it emphasizes it. And so what poetry does is for, for one part is it takes those things that can't be held in a word or have been locked up in a word, right? Your inscape has narrowed with a word so much that you just see one thing and it opens it up. It takes that one-to-one -one correspondence with a word and breaks it apart. I think this is part of Peterson's popularity in his early days was he was doing exactly this with the Bible and with, with the idea of God for many, many people. They had this one-to-one -one correspondence with say Bible has a moral interpretation and that's it. What's the moral of the story? God means this one thing and he'd walk out on a stage and spend two hours. Now, I'm, I, I like when Peugeot talks, Peugeot and others talk about how in some ways morality was overemphasized, but it's not just morality. It's also the, the, the function and how things function and sort of the, the phase dislocation that happened in modernity and the relocation that is putting peace together now. That, that probably made no sense, but made sense to me. I was talking about all these crazy ways that you could look at, say, one chapter in the book of Genesis and people were eating it up. Why? Because he, had he was revealing the inscape of the scriptures. It doesn't mean that he's giving attention necessarily to the right place, but he is opening it up again. So that's, that's the inscape in stress is a different aspect of that. And that is how you focus your attention. You put stress on something. Okay. So 
Hopkins' notion of perception is actually, it's just beautifully elegant. He says, you could look at a thing and see its relation to everything, right? There's just, there's depth there, but you're one person and so you have to focus on something. And that is the in-stress. He says, I've often, I've been in this mood and felt the depth of an in-stress or how fast the inscape holds a thing that nothing is so pregnant and straightforward to the truth as a simple yes and is. The in, the in stress, that's yes. The inscape, that's the is, right? This should be our approach to reality. This is what poetry helps us do at its best. Poetry says is and yes. I'm only 23 minutes in, but it goes on, you know, it goes on quite a while yet. So the link is below. You know, poor Ted only has 81 views on this video. And the video is obviously worth way more than 81 views. And there's a there's a playlist for all of the for all of the lectures given at the conference. And I'll put that below too. And well, I'm out of time. But let me know what you think. Leave a comment.